0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Sean Fay, writer, artist, comedian and author of the forthcoming book, The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice. We discuss the prevalence of transphobia in the UK, why the transgender issue is also a class issue and how socialists can and should support the fight for trans rights. Thanks so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornel West, support us at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at aworldtowinpod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Sean Fay on what transphobia is and how prevalent it is in the UK. Hello, Sean Fay, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. I am uh, doing all right today. I am yeah, in the midst of pre-book publicity. It's all a bit of a whirlwind, but I am having some time with family, so I'm recording tonight my nice. family house.
0: Lovely. So I guess I want to start just by talking a little bit about... Um, Transphobia in the UK. I've seen a lot of stats recently suggesting that actually most people are pretty accepting of trans people. But obviously, we know that trans people experience a horrendous amount of abuse on a daily basis. Just how transphobic is the average person in the UK, do you think? And is the direction of travel broadly positive or negative?
1: That's an interesting question. How transphobic is the average person in the UK? Well, there's, so I would say if we're going to use the term transphobia, and I think it's probably the most convenient word, um, I think there are different ways to think about transphobia. So much like other kind of forms of bigotry or hostility towards minority groups, so for example, homophobia or any variety of kind of um, prejudice based on ethnicity, or um, I think I think there are ways to think about it interpersonally and there are ways to think about it systemically. Um, my book looks at both. So when you ask the question, "What's the, how transphobic is the average person in the UK? Well, there is a difference between, I think the vast majority of people in the UK probably don't care that much either way. So long as you're not, you know, on a fundamental human basis, if you're not interfering with someone's life, then pretty much I think a lot of people probably don't feel that they have so many active, overt prejudice. However... There is can be a difference between, I think, a lot of people because trans people are such a minority group, and particularly not really in the mainstream. There's been more, much more cultural inroads in terms of cultural representation, in terms of television, art, film. But there hasn't necessarily been, you know, there's, there's never been a trans MP, for example. There are no trans high court judges. There are no trans newspaper editors. There are no trans, like, uh, I don't know, leading business figures in the UK. So... So, so there aren't these sort of trans people perhaps in public life. So I think what happens there is people can slightly, I think there's a difference between overt hostility, which is really, really nasty, which I think most people wouldn't have. However, because trans people are unfamiliar to so many people, a lot of people don't actually know what transphobia looks like. There are very much more covert, subtle forms of transphobia that people perhaps can display without even meaning to. So I think that's, that's the first thing to be said. The other is that there is a lot of research at the British Social Attitude Survey that shows that people are more transphobic than they think they are. So people will answer direct questions in things like the British Attitude, Social Attitude Survey, saying things like, you know, do you have a problem with trans people, basically, like those sort of direct questions. And most people will say no. But then if you look at like, should trans people be able to teach school children? I think it's only 41% of Britons think trans people should definitely be able to teach school children. So there's an indication there that people are more transphobic than they think they are, because they partly don't even have the tools to maybe understand what transphobia looks like. So that's what I would say on that front, on the interpersonal front. And then I think what we need to think about as well is systemic transphobia or systemic discrimination against trans people, which is probably a better way of putting it. And that is unfortunately embedded into public life because of Well, in all areas of public life, because there's a presumption of binary services, binary facilities, a binary way of kind of structuring society, structuring the way that we are together in society, structuring even public space. And obviously trans people represent a complication to that. And then often when, you know, small inroads that trans people make politically is asking for perhaps a slight relinquishment or a rethinking of that. And suddenly there can be hostility towards that. And suddenly it's like, well... This is a demanding minority, et cetera. Um, So I would say that is a kind of survey, if you like, a very brief survey of what I would say of the state of the nation. The other thing I would say is, yeah, polling shows actually most people don't have a problem with trans people. I think that's probably true. However, obviously the the British media, and particularly the traditional media, the Murdoch-owned press, but even the liberal press, to a certain extent, um, do have... Oh, sorry. Wait a minute. Yep, I'm going to... Um, I'm just going to quickly tell my mum to stop ringing me, that's my mum. Yeah, so I would say, yeah, so I would say, yeah, there's also a a huge rise in hostility in the media. Yeah, so not just traditional right-wing media, but also some kind of liberal left-wing media. And that obviously can affect public attitudes and sway the institutional attitudes towards trans people in terms of, um, yeah, public bodies, institutions, schools, politicians etc from being making at least creating a hesitancy about being very vocal in support of trans liberation so there's a very long answer for you as you wanted but um, Perfect.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to pick up on something actually um, you said there about media institutions and the kind of embedded transphobia that exists within them because you you wrote, have written a lot for The Guardian, for, you know, a few other people, you are someone who is in the media a lot. What has it been like for you on a personal level, often having to go out there and, and fight in a, a, you know, publication f- that has asked you to write for them,
1: mm-hmm.
0: basically to say, you know, I have the right to exist, only to kind of come up against pretty hostile responses from people who are supposed to have the same sort of political experiences and views as you do?
1: Mm. It's an interesting question. I think, yeah, it's frustrating because I've worked in lots of different areas of the media. So obviously, um, yeah, I've worked in the mainstream kind of liberal media. So yeah, things like The Guardian, for example. And also, you know, a lot of my platform originally came from, uh, you know, from left wing media, from alternative media like Navarro, which of course is, is has always been very supportive of me, for example. But um, but I, I'll explain it a bit. But sometimes obviously the reactions from for me as a kind of trans woman that was doing like left wing, Alternative media too is if you just look at kind of the reaction, audience reaction. Sometimes it was a kind of different kind of confusion about like, is this really leftism? Isn't this identity politics? So we can mm. we can talk about that in a bit. Mm. But um, but with with the mainstream media, if you like, um, The Guardian. Yeah, the, the trouble is that the agendas were always controlled by I. You know, I'm, there are no, there is one staff writer I am aware of at a British newspaper, and that is Nikki Bandini at The Guardian, but she is exclusively a football writer. So she doesn't obviously write on trans issues at all. And so everyone else really is a kind of freelancer. And when you are a freelancer and these papers have, let's say, trans hostile editors in strategic places in their internal structure and people on the payroll and well-established columnists who are maybe a little bit more hostile to trans people or to trans uh, rights or to trans liberation, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, you're in a weaker position. So I often found writing for them frustrating because you would pitch things that I wanted to talk about. So, for example, school bullying, the dreadful stats on kind of harassment of trans young people in schools, or perhaps like more expansive topics. And I did occasionally get them in. So I wrote a piece in 2018 saying, you know, basically the fight for trans rights is is part of class struggle. And, um, but that took so much work and persuasion. I had to write so many Mm. other pieces before that because basically people only wanted reactive pieces to um, perhaps, Yeah, an agenda set by, you know, people want to talk about trans women in women's refuges or they want to talk about sports or they want to talk about, I don't know, trans kids, but only about certain things like medicine and puberty blockers. So these kind of points of cisgender people's anxiety, but never really that open to things that didn't have a news hook and didn't have, Mm. yeah, and perhaps weren't something that, so I felt that very much I was put into a reactive position. Working as a freelance journalist, writing on trends issues, and it was what sort of prompted me to write the book because mm. I realised I was never going to be able to set the terms of the discussion via a few commenters' free pieces, yeah. or even like, you know, because it's just not going to cut through in that way. And that actually, when I looked at what other writers, perhaps writers from minority positions, had done, was they had used a book to kind of, um, if you like, agenda set.
0: I want to just go back to a question I had that you kind of alluded to in the answer to your first question, which is a lot of transphobic language is kind of couched in terms of a kind of moral panic. Um, And a lot of people have kind of compared it to, you know, homophobia and argued that, you know, the the struggle for trans rights is is part of that same struggle um, against homophobia and for gay rights. What do you think are the kind of similarities and what are the limitations of that comparison?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because I do think there are huge limitations to it. I think there's a rhetorical importance to it. And obviously, there are so there are some analogies between perhaps homophobic panics of the past, particularly in the 80s and 90s around the AIDS crisis and around the kind of idea that the, throughout the set you see in the 70s with the start of the Gay Liberation Front, the sort of, you know, the importation of a um, so UK Gay Liberation Front, um, which kind of mod- modelled itself on the American form of it, um, and then gay pride marches in the UK. And then what you see in the in the 80s is kind of left-wing Labour councils encouraging, you know, more inclusive forms of sex education, more inclusive attitudes in schools, and then the right has this huge panic and, and Thatcher's Conservative Party starts to have this kind of yeah, the Murdoch press and the Thatcher Conservative led you know, Thatcher led Conservative Party kind of yeah, act to stem that tide because they they become panicked by it and they also like to deflect so they you get this narrative of these uh, lefty Labour loony councils who are um, basically converting young people to being gay. And obviously with the AIDS crisis and a kind of general panic, you get legislation like Section 28, which banned the promotion of homosexuality in schools. There are some analogies with what's happening with transphobia now, although, so I think there are some things. So the idea that, that we are recruiting the young, the idea that there is a social contagion, the idea that, like, you know, in many ways that, uh, yeah, that safeguarding of children is being threatened. The idea that a minority is somehow controlling Um, the idea of this idea of a trans lobby is very common, this kind of myth, which is obviously a very ancient form of an enemy within an ancient form of prejudice. Mm. The idea that despite having no structural power at all, and despite literally, like I said, having not one MP ever in this country, who's an out trans person, that somehow we, ex- we wield great power over public institutions in a shadowy lobby. That's a very common view in the, in the right-wing press and, um, and yeah, even some of the liberal press. So there is certainly some analogy there. Where I would say that there's perhaps a bit of a limitation is one. I think it's naive to think because I think what it leads to is a kind of um, a kind of belief that like trans liberation it's sort of like gay rights but on a 20 year time lag and that like in the end everything will be fine mm. and history will reveal the moral truth and we'll be fine but of course we're in a we exist in a very political different political context i mean capitalism <laughs> is is we've gone through like 10 years of austerity which just hadn't existed in the 80s for example considering what we're looking at in a wider context of um well just recently the pandemic but also what we're in terms of the climate crisis the way in which capitalism is kind of advancing and the way that the right has has advanced in many ways since the 80s. I don't think you can just say that it's it's analogous because we're existing in a very different political time. And I also think having lived as a gay person myself, like, you know, identified as a gay person prior Mm. to transitioning, I I do think that trans people throw up deeper-seated anxieties about how we structure society more Mm. so than gay people do because... The existence of trans people fundamentally threatens the gender binary, which is like one of the most foundational ideas about how we order everything <laughs> uh, in this world. And um, it causes a deep seated anxiety in people to see that threatened, which is why in some, way, in some ways easier if you cross from you know male to female, male to female in a very medical way. And you sort of assimilate and fit in and look like how you're supposed to look to be a man or a woman people are less alarmed by that than perhaps non-binary discourses, the idea of Mm. kind of dismantling the gender binary. Um, But yeah, fundamentally, things like, which I tackle in the book and want to look at in the book is, how do we accommodate trans people in the prison system? My argument is that the prison system is a binary system of incarceration. And it's not just about trying to accommodate trans people within that. The implications that we have is that like, yeah, trans people are treated treated inhumanely in prison, but so is everyone. Like, you know, once you, start, once you start to kind of challenge the binary nature of car- incarceration, you can't really stop that. You have to kind of challenge the system of incarceration as a whole. So I, th- I think there are a lot more kind of existential questions, perhaps, that the trans people pose for some people. I also think, like, yeah, it's not purely moral panic because, I, I mean, everyone is affected, but but like, there are certain ways in which trans people's lives are shaped by capitalism. So, for example, our healthcare is... Um, we are going to, you know, a lot of us are reliant to the treatment of um, gender dysphoria, are reliant on kind of free things like free and universal healthcare. What is it? What does healthcare mean? What is the purpose of gender affirmative healthcare? What is the purpose of bodily autonomy? And while gay people, particularly gay men in the AIDS crisis, did pose those questions about, you know, whether or not AIDS medication should be made available. I think in the here and now, trans people pose perhaps some some harder questions. And so I think there's a limitation with the direct analogy between gay people and trans people. But there are a lot about school bullying, about otherness, about queerness, about being different that certainly do hold up. And I think the, the moral panic we're seeing in the media at the moment is very, has a lot of analogies, certainly.
0: I think that point about the kind of anxiety that is generated by this undermining of gender binaries, And, you know, that you see it with with sexuality as well at the moment with kind of, you know, younger people being much less willing to just put themselves in one of two categories. With the gender thing, it seems so much more, I mean, you know, just from kind of, especially actually, funnily enough, a lot of women online who are transphobic or use transphobic language, it's almost as though they feel like any blurring of the boundary between male and female makes them feel less secure about their belonging to any one category. Like the idea that I have to pick where I stand in terms of this continuum of, of male to female might mean like I'm less of a woman or something, which is, you're right, is interesting and speaks to something that is a much more profound shift, which is like, right, okay, so why do we organize society according to these very rigid binaries? And it obviously has a lot to do with um, both, you know, the way that state power is is exerted and, and, and is used and also with, with capitalism as well mm-hmm. I want to talk a lot about the kind of structural issues that you've you've mentioned in a second but just in terms of that anxiety what's your experience with that kind of thinking and how best is it to kind of respond to
1: so yeah so if you're talking about so for example you mentioned women there and i think it's important to say that yeah a lot of these women are feminists and i and i and I think you know feminism is a broad church and I find it kind of I always challenge people when they say well they're not feminists because there's been this kind of recent kind of if you like the kind of Instagram some people say third wave neoliberal consumerist feminism that has obviously become very popular in recent years is you almost see this like idea of the idea of the feminist as a good person so to be a feminist you have to Mm. be a good person and to be a good person is to be a feminist therefore if someone is bigoted and a feminist they're not really a feminist But I would say it's much more similar to um, saying you're a Christian, right? Is that that feminism is a kind of school of thought and it's a broad church in that way. And there have always been multiple types of feminisms and multiple angles and ways of understanding feminism. Some of them extremely harmful and some of them, you know, much more chime with my own kind of feminism. And so, yeah, I would say that, you know, the the feminist anxiety that comes and it's always been there. And I, I do. Discuss this in the book is that there is an anxiety there around. There's always been this anxiety around trans people, and actually, most feminists have always kind of they have been quite strong since the 70s. I'd say the vast majority of feminists are kind of fine with the inclusion of trans people, kind of accepting trans people into their discourse. It doesn't always mean that their discourse or their their politics has been particularly beneficial to trans people, but it doesn't mean that they've been actively hostile. Where I would say we're at the moment, what I see a lot with um, that kind of anxiety, particularly, and it obviously focuses a lot on trans women, trans men, and I think non-binary people kind of experience transphobia in a slightly different way. It doesn't, doesn't make it any uh, better or worse, but it's it's different. But I think after 10 years of austerity, what we've seen is kind of like, which affected women so much, uh, yeah, more severely in many ways mm. than men, particularly working class women, um, a complete decimation of services for women, particularly crisis services, rape crisis services, domestic and sexual violence services. I think it's now, I think it's almost like one in two people but you know, mostly it's going to be cisgender women who try to access a refuge are turned away because it just isn't any really space. You know, that's that's something that's been happening, you know, was happening for the last, for the, in the 2010s. And yeah, has completely kind of eroded a lot of these kind of material needs to support women escaping, particularly male violence or gender-based violence and I think that has combined with the rise of kind of if you like the visibility of trans people and often I feel there's a sense of a misplaced anger yeah in the sense that because femi- feminist discourses have always fundamentally what I or my understanding of like feminist arguments is there's never been full agreement on wh- how we define the categories of man and woman we know they exist yeah but they are kind of political like for all fe- most feminist thought particularly second wave feminist thought thought that to be a woman was a political experience like a socio political experience not pure like obviously grounded largely and and often um built by patriarchy around women's biology but not like solely biological and yeah and i i think it's uh, the idea that feminism was supposed to have radical potential was supposed to be optimistic right like as, as any kind of radical political analysis is supposed to be is to have a kind of radical element of hope and optimism that the categories of like man and woman which are patriarchally constructed could one day be dismantled could be abolished could be changed and I think because you know a lot of women who've been very hurt mistreated are attracted to kind of trans hostile discourses because they essentially have ended up kind of understandably with a pessimism about the capacity for change can we really change the systemic nature of Patriarchy. Can we really change male violence? Because whilst women might be have more rights in the workplace, we know that sexual violence, domestic violence, a lot of these the kind of worst issues for women haven't really improved since second wave feminism. And so I think there's this kind of pessimism that actually male violence is inherent. There isn't something that can be changed. And so instead, there's this kind of circling the wagons around the boundaries and definition of what it is to be a woman at all. And it becomes again very binary. So it's like, you know, unfortunately, no, the categories of man and woman are fixed. It's male and female, it's rooted in biology. Males are oppressors and violent. Females are victims and must suffer. And the best you can do is to mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, guard the category of female. And of course, then trans women become the biggest enemy of all, more so than like patriarchal men, because trans women are seen as interlopers into the category of woman. And there's a kind of confusion about why we would want to be in the category of woman, of suspicion of that. And quite quickly, you can see with this kind of particular anxiety, as it's expressed online, with the very extreme radicalization, you can see of transphobes and transphobic feminists online, is that trans women become the kind of patriarch du, du jour, because we are apparently kind of interloping on womanhood and trying to kind of break down the safe space that these people want to create conceptually and of course in real life in real life spaces too if that makes sense.
0: Yeah it kind of you know when I think back to like me my radicalization as like a feminist in the very early stages of it it's like um, you know oh men have mistreated me men are bad we need to create our own spaces like kind of um, you know it's the classic like Uh, young teenage girl who's just become a feminist and therefore is like very angry at at men in general Um, and I, I certainly recognize that experience before you know actually being able to kind of recognize that patriarchy oppresses us all and I think that kind of comes into the argument that you make, which I think is really compelling, which is that actually the struggle for trans rights isn't just about making life better for trans people. It is obviously clearly a lot about that, but it's actually about building a a more just and a more free society. Can you talk a little bit about why you're so convinced that trans liberation will benefit us all?
1: Well, yeah, because I think, so that kind of ties into, to the argument you made there. And I think when you, you discussed there, like that kind of early feminist journey, it is like, you know, I, I would say that it's quite a natural response for any woman to, yeah, to have that idea that like, yeah, you need to spaces that men are, yeah, yeah in, a, in a sense, the enemy, because in many ways they, you know, so a lot of men can create the experience. It doesn't take many men to create the experience that they are I mean and and I can I feel the same way too because you know I don't I'm not hugely autobiographical in the book but there are anecdotal things but obviously being a very feminine child even though I didn't experience a cisgender woman's teenage years I I was very much targeted by you know heterosexual older boys in horrible Mm -hmm. ways different ways to the ways that like perhaps you know my sister or, or or women I know were but I was and then once I transition I mean like it's all the same things I mean I have to think about where I go at night what I do mm. um, these things affect trans women as much and it's very I've had the same thing you know where I've, I've been very much like men cis men are the enemy in particular what I would say about why trans trans liberation would benefit everyone is I really wanted to make that the kind of center I mean that's the opening line of my book is that the liberation of trans people would help the lives of everyone in our society I think I might have actually misquoted myself there just check yeah um the liberation of trans people would improve the lives of everyone in our society and I say that in the book and that's the opening line because I wanted to make that really because all we're ever really used to hearing about is how trans people are a burden trans people are a nuisance they're forcing a kind of they have to be included they have to be accommodated and even when that's done in, in a benevolent way it's still a benevolent way and I thought it was more interesting to say well Here are like, you know, what trans people are, the implications of what we exist, and and by trans people I mean, obviously trans is a very specific and modern and 20th century way of thinking about gender variance, but certainly gender variant people, people leading cross-gender lives, non-conforming lives, have always existed, is what we present is a challenge to binaries, and binaries are, yeah, they impose on us all. They restrict all of, like, our dignity, our freedom. And what a lot of trans people are asking for, chime directly. So when I say, like, if the trans person was liberated, by implication, so would women have to be. For example, like, if you give trans people full autonomy over their body, in a society in which a trans person had full autonomy over their bodies to kind of have a kind of, um, yeah, to, to do whatever they wanted with their body in terms of medical transition, in terms of reassigning their characteristics, gender characteristics or sex characteristics, for so that's for free, universally, you know, at the point of access, all that stuff without violence. That would also be the same world in which a woman could have full reproductive freedom without violence or without state intrusion. Mm. It would also be a system, you know, in which we didn't mass incarcerate people. It would also for a trans person to be able to have the kind of means to work in safety and dignity. That would mean that we had a world in which workers' rights <laughs> were mm. substantially better than they are now it's just that the idea that the ways in which the sort of ingredients need so one in four trans people for example have been homeless a lot of the things that are necessary to make um trans people to not expose trans people to that look to the like what do we expect from society a social safety net what do we expect from community what happens if your family reject you what happens if we don't rely on the nuclear family as we need to because of a capitalist system when that doesn't work and there is no social safety net for a young person kicked out and then there's you know universal credit, for example, and then their finances unravel in the six weeks that it takes them to get universal credit and they become homeless. To remedy all of that would be would require remedying it for everyone. So it's kind of a lens to view the liberation of the trans person as a kind of that's my argument, I guess, is a lens through which, in order to create the conditions for that, it would only benefit everyone else. And I think that's to do an inversion of what perhaps people are used to thinking of when they think about trans rights or trans inclusion is the idea that people, other people are giving up something to us you know you hear this language a lot in the media at the moment a conflict of rights what about balancing trans rights and women's rights or you know giving to trans people can't mean taking from women and children I mean these 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 kind of oppositionalities are really really common ways of understanding trans people at the moment and I really wanted to turn that on its head and be like no the fully liberated trans person would also, by implication, exist in a world in which everyone was liberated.
0: You alluded to a bit there, but what is it that makes you think the trans issue is a class issue? And not just in terms of the fact that that trans people are obviously often on the sharp end of a lot of the kind of most exploitative and, and oppressive processes that take place within our society, but also why... Um, yeah, I guess why the struggle for for trans rights and trans liberation would go some way to kind of undermining the class foundations of our of our society. So whether that's to do with kind of the importance of gender binaries for social reproduction or, or anything else.
1: Yeah, well, there's that, isn't there? There's the kind of classic theoretical aspect in which you say, like, if you want to go kind of, yeah, like into kind of Marxism or kind of... Um, Gen- yeah, so generally socialist theory is that, like, or socialist feminism is, one, the capitalist system re- requires us to divide men's work and men's labour and women's labour. So, yeah, for, for social reproduction in terms of the nuclear family, in terms of, like, you know, what what we classify as masculine labour and feminine labour. And in order to do that, you have to have a coherent way to divide men and women. And you have to have a way of socially organising around that. Secondly, obviously, capitalism requires a reservoir of unemployed people, and gender is one way that that kind of underclass is constructed, I guess, or that reservoir is constructed in many ways. But for example, the exclusion of, well, like, for example, yeah, a lot of people who are working in illegal economies, which intersects with trans people. So a lot of, the vast majority of the world's trans women are engaged in the sex industry. So the sex industry is typically a criminalised economy. And yeah, that, that's inherently kind of, um, so the kind of social exclusions necessary for capitalism to function and so trans people form a part of that so there's that kind of theoretical aspect then there's also the fact so yeah trans people essentially can confound these ideas because if we break down gender binaries and sort of break down the division the gender division of labor then fundamentally there's there's kind of a yeah threat to capitalism secondly I think is also the reason it's a class issue is because yeah because the nature of being trans is shaped by social class itself in order to there's an inherent contradiction for trans people around often the medical gatekeeping that trans people have to experience in order to be able to transition has required that like literally the medical clinical protocols have required them to show that they are functioning as a worker in a capitalist society that's what psychiatry has often demanded of trans people is to demonstrate well how in order for us to allow you to transition you have to demonstrate that you are functioning in your gender and one of the ways that you have to demonstrate that is by showing that you are functioning as a worker so there's that kind of interplay between the medical establishment and capitalism in terms of governing trans people's bodily autonomy. Another thing I think is to say, yeah, is that, um, as you alluded to, is that trans people are often in very exploitative working conditions, are often very precariously employed. And yeah, despite the fact that there's a myth that obviously because because of things like legislation in Britain, that there are legal rights rights. Against discrimination for trans people. Obviously, there are huge issues with access to justice, with, for example, precarity in work and zero hours contract, where it doesn't really matter that you might not be able to be fired for the fact that you're trans, you can still just not be offered any more work. I think these are issues that aren't specific or unique to trans people, but certainly chime with what a lot of workers' movements have been talking about in the last, particularly like, yeah, the erosion of workers' rights and increased precarity, especially in the last 10 years. And I think I really wanted to place that the heart of my argument because yeah when i was doing stuff for for example Navarra, alternative leftist media generally is yeah there was a basis isn't this just all a bit of a kind of bourgeois individualistic ideology that's all about kind of yeah okay mm. we, want, we want you to be okay but like just seems to be these people going off and getting surgery and it all seems a bit coddled and individualistic and not really a material struggle and actually i wanted to kind of yeah as a leftist wanted to kind of say well no there is this kind of very socialist lens that you can look at kind of trans liberation through and see it ultimately as the struggle of workers and in many ways that's better for building solidarity because trans people are never going to be able to improve conditions for ourselves and what we see in britain is often like the way that um for example we we put our faith in the hope that trans workers will be treated better is like ngos and charities organizations like stonewall for example who work with like perhaps some of the top 50 employers Either in the private sector or the public sector, and giving them inclusion training and hoping that it's going to sort of trickle down. But the reality is that that's never going to trickle down to the most precarious workers. It's never going to trickle down to sex workers. It's never going to trickle down to people like, you know, I, I remember meeting like a trans girl who was working in a meatpacking factory in South Wales and just like the horrendous transphobic harassment she was getting at work when I was working for Stonewall. And that's never going to trickle down to those workers. It's obviously part of, you know, typical socialist leftism is it's going to come from trade unionism it's going to come from organizing and building solidarity with other groups and the labor movement as it always has done really any improvement in workers rights
0: and what about the links between the struggle for trans rights and the struggle against white supremacy because you have on the one hand you know very clear evidence that black trans people face you know extraordinary barriers just to kind of existing And you also get the kind of extremely like clumsy, you know, transitioning from male to female is like transitioning from white to black or whatever. Mm -hmm. What do those kind of different ways of of viewing these links tell us about the similarities and complementarities between the struggle for trans rights and the struggle against white supremacy?
1: I mean, yeah, it's an interesting question. Obviously, you know, it's something that I've reflected on a lot as a white trans writer. I mean, it's the reason that white whites um, resisting white supremacy and resisting if you like transphobia have an inherent link is one that they both are about biological essentialism about rooting a social construct um, that is used to exploit people. So gender is a large social construct that involves us all race is a different kind of historical social construct that only affects certain people, but they are both about kind of imbuing this social construct with a kind of biological, as if it's a biological reality, as if it's a fact. And so in that way they are sort of linked and certainly, I think there's a lot of kind of discourses that come kind of about resisting biological essentialism that they can overlap. I think the other thing to say is that there's a lot of there's a lot of historical factors as well to the interplay between the, gender, the imposition of the gender binary and race. So obviously, um, gender diversity has existed at different times in different cultures. Certainly, a lot of Black trans people um, I know in my own life who um, make work who write will talk about kind of, yeah, the idea of the cultures in which they come from um, historically and their ancestors came from as having greater gender diversity and sexual diversity and it being kind of essentially uh, a mechanism of colonialism to impose a very kind of Eurocentric Western Christian gender binary as a part of colonialism. And there certainly are examples of that around the world. And so I think for a lot of Black and other trans people of colour, they see essentially the resistance against binary gender as part of a rejection of the kind of white supremacy imposed on their ancestors. So there's that element to it. I also think there's just a lot of kind of not perfect overlaps, but material conditions where black and white trans people, or white trans people should have solidarity with black trans people is for example, historically policing and the state were very, very hostile to all trans people and gender variant people. However, there's been a kind of rapprochement in recent years where certain elements of police forces will go on diversity inclusion trainings and fly the trans flag on Trans Day of Visibility and march in uniform at Pride. But that's very, very recent. I'd say it's very fragile. And uh, there are examples in the book I've described where police will revert quite quickly to transphobic practices if necessary. But also, uh, as white trans people, we have to be mindful that for the trans person of colour, you know, simultaneously that intersection with police racism, with systemic violence, with a kind of an incarceration system, a criminal justice system that is fundamentally institutionally racist, is that as white trans people, we kind of have to be mindful of that and not not basically sell out trans people of colour and to be kind of considerate of all the ways in which these systems may offer to accommodate us because of our whiteness, but they um, fundamentally won't work for all trans people. And yeah, so I, I don't know if that answers your question. It was a very, it was, there was a lot of thoughts there.
0: <laughs> what do you think the struggle for trans rights can teach us about the stakes of socialist struggle or maybe, you know, what it means for us to think of ourselves as, as socialists today?
1: Let me answer it this way, is that when I was writing the book, you know, I, I got this book deal and I kind of, done you know, like the standard things as an author, you get to um, submit a plan and all that stuff is considering where like we've talked about the media narratives and where the conversation around trans rights is in the UK is there was a different book I kind of could have written where it was a bit more appeasing of kind of liberal arguments, of centrist arguments, and perhaps a little less radical and a little less obviously left-wing and socialist. And there was a temptation to do that um, at certain points. But I think whilst I was writing it last year uh, in 2020, and I wrote bulk of it in the lockdowns, you know, we were seeing obviously the sudden shifts of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, suddenly the furlough scheme, suddenly this kind of huge, especially, and we forget now because we've so adapted to life uh, in the pandemic, but this like very huge social change and even, you know, from a Tory government. Suddenly, government acting in ways that we were told were impossible a few years ago, alongside the resurgence globally of the Black Lives Matter movement and a kind of growing awareness that the climate crisis is, is only worsening. And so for me, I think in terms of the stakes is that I, yeah, I could have advanced a much more assimilationist kind of um, comforting argument about, well, trans people are just trying to live our li-, you know, which is also simultaneously true. Trans people on an individual level are all just trying to live our lives. We're all trying to, you know, just get by. We just want to be accepted. We're just like you, which is all sort of true on a fundamental interpersonal level. But in terms of a structural level about the social change needed, the stakes are so high for us as socialists anyway, in terms of the radical social upheaval that we have seen and are going to continue to see, frankly, in the political conditions that we're living under at the moment. And I, I particularly think a lot about the climate crisis with regards to this, even though it doesn't seem very connected to, tra- to trans rights is that we're going to see radical social change as a result mm-hmm. of that one way or another anyway and so I guess in a way for me it was kind of necessary to think well let's go back to yeah the roots of our society and what why are conditions made so uniquely difficult for trans people and actually yeah perhaps the people that are deeply anxious about um, the progress of trans liberation like of course they're bigots. But they're also kind of right because probably what they see is that fundamentally trans people do present a challenge to the status quo and i'm much more interested Mm -hmm. perhaps in this time in following through on that and being like well maybe we do present a challenge to the status quo and maybe we ought to maybe we ought to not assimilate into clearly something that is not working for anyone and actually is sort of collapsing in on itself not to be too apocalyptic (laughs) um but that's that's for me where i think it, it where it revealed about the stakes is so um, you know I think you said I wouldn't do too many spoilers but you know I've alluded to it but for example when I talk I, I do a chapter on the state when I was thinking about trans people in prisons because I knew this was something the book would have to cover because there are so many news stories about what about trans women in women's prisons particularly if they've committed crimes against cis women or you know violent crimes and I was going to have to address this kind of um, yeah huge scaremongering around that in the media but the reality is, the, I was like, well, how can you argue for trans people to be included in a binary system of incarceration that, like, at the time I was writing it, prisoners were being kept in their cells pretty much 24 hours a day instead of being, like, decarcerated because they had to control the spread of the virus. Mm. I, you know, this sort of background noise, you know, made me think, well, no, I'm just going to have to make an abolitionist <laughs> argument because I am <laughs> a prison abolitionist. Yeah. I am an abolitionist. So the book makes an explicitly abolitionist argument and it does so not in a, you know, not in a hugely, I, I try and do it in a very evidence calm way but it is, it's about kind of thinking well there is no time <laughs> for us to perhaps be making, it's the mm-hmm. kind of it's socialism or barbarism vibe isn't it is perhaps there is no time for us to be making these kind of liberal palatable and comforting gestures about what it would actually take for the freedom and liberation of trans people because there isn't really time for us to do that about the liberation of most people of most workers of most women we're not living in a time where I think that's possible I think we have to be thinking radically because we're existing in a time of huge social change and it's important to kind of I guess be intellectually honest uh, yes. on the left
0: <laughs> Sean Faye thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win Thanks